A beginning and an end. A decisive battle, but no victor. A power built to fend off a superpower, defended, then abandoned. The Battle of Rua Pekapeka in January 1846 was the final act of New Zealand's complicated Northern War, a war that started explosively with Honehekes' famous attack on the flagpole at Kororareka, or Russell, but which fizzled out just six months later. Yet its ghosts still stalk Te Kai Tokero to this day. On a hill 14 kilometres southeast of Kawakawa and halfway to nowhere, Māori were bombarded for a week and a half. Absolutely terrifying um, to have 30 tonnes of artillery rain down upon you for 10 days. One can only imagine. Outnumbered, four to one by the British Redcoats. This is the world's sole superpower at the time, up, up against really a civilian population. Yet remarkably, when the British troops finally charged the par, scrambling up this hillside, they found it all but empty. They deserted, they left it. And they had no reason to set up anywhere else. They'd proven their point, or whatever that point was, it was proven. An anticlimax? In terms of guts and glory, perhaps. But the story of Rua Pekapeka Peka is much bigger. It was a turning point in Māori-Pākehā relations, the first clash over Te Tiriti or Waitangi. So why were Māori and Pākehā at war in the north? How had it come to this less than six years after the treaty that was meant to bind the peoples together? Why does this battle stand out in the history of warfare? And what is its legacy today? Ko Ngāpuhi te iwi, ko Ngātikuta te hapu, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Shannon Honui Thompson a hau. 170 years on, we want to take you back to the battle. The Battle of Rua Pekapeka. No sooner had that ink dried on his signature on Te Tiriti, the governor, then turned around and said, all um, grog shops need to be licensed, and his didn't get a licence. Trading food to colonists in New Zealand and Australia had made Ngāpuhi rich and powerful. When the Treaty of Waitangi was signed, many iwi leaders were keen to double down. But five years on, relations between many northern Māori and the British had gone sour. Arapeta Hamilton describes the experience of one of his tūpuna, Pōmare, a Ngāti Manu Rangatira, who had made his tribe rich trading with European sailors in the Bay of Islands. The second thing was, they called it Monitauranga, which is uh, 
tolls from the ships that anchored in the Bay of Islands. The governor comes up to him and says, oh, you can't collect, can't collect that money tauranga anymore. Belongs to Queen Victoria. And then the third thing that happened was the capital of New Zealand was moved from Okiato, which was on his land, to Auckland. Ngāti Manu went from a wealthy tribe to a very poor tribe in a matter of a few years. Historian Vincent O'Malley says the experience of Arapeta Hamilton's tūpuna was a common one. After 1840, that relationship with the British Crown starts to unravel fairly quickly. And really all of the rangatira um, share some concerns. None of them voluntarily ceded their rangatira tanga to the Crown. I mean, the, the treaty promised that that would be protected. Ngāpuhi debated among themselves what to do. One faction, led by Honeheke and Teruki Kawati, argued it was time to assert their status as the rulers of the North. Another faction favoured peace. Among them was Tamati Wakanene. But it wasn't a simple matter of being for or against the British. Here's David Green, who's of Ngaitahu and Pākehā descent and works as a historian for the Ministry of Culture and Heritage. All sides, the both sides and the neutrals, all probably wanted to remedy this situation. And it was more a matter of tactics as to how this would, would be achieved. Nanny had been a, he'd been a supporter of the missionaries for a long time and he also was much more positive about the governors and, and the British official structure than people like Kawati, who had only very reluctantly signed the treaty very, very late in in the day, he really wasn't convinced it was a good idea at all. And there was also an element of pre-existing tensions among different hapu of Napui that had been going on for decades, and personal elements as well. Um, one of the books I read put it, Hickey was a man of many thoughts, which was a polite way of saying I think that he was inconsistent, and certainly he had a, a decent-sized ego, there's, there's no question about that. Older chiefs who'd been of high status for a long time, like Nanny, I have the impression they couldn't really stand Hickey, some of them, that they just saw him as, as an upstart. Hone Hickey had been the first to sign the treaty, but was becoming disillusioned as Māori authority and economic growth seemed to wane. As tensions grew, Hickey chopped down the flagpole in Kororareka, Russell. Not once, but four times. By the fourth and final time, the flagpole had been encased in steel and surrounded by soldiers. The town was on a war footing. A warship sat in the bay. Still, Heke came. This is where the Northern War turned bloody. Ngāti Hene chief Teruki Kawati created a diversion in the township so Heke could get to the flagpole on the hill. Kawati and his warriors attacked the local garrison, killing 40 British soldiers. Kawati was the master strategist of the Northern War. He was nearly 70 when the conflict began, a veteran of the musket wars of the early 1800s. Penny Hinare from the Rua Pekepeke Trust 
and a descendant of Kawati, says the Europeans nicknamed him the Duke, Teruki, in recognition of his skill as a military commander. Here's a veteran who'd served in well over a dozen campaigns right across the country, um, from the musket raids to the south. Uh, we know that he commanded a presence wherever he went. The missionaries described him as somebody who was uh, no muck around kind of a person. In fact, when asked uh, at the time of the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi whether or not he should go and consult with his people, he simply turned around and said, I'm the rangatira, I tell them what to do. Let's fast forward to early December 1845, nine months into the war in the north. The British have got serious. The number of redcoats deployed to New Zealand from around the empire increased by a factor of 10. Now 1,300 British troops with 400 Māori allies led by Tamati Wakanene are slogging over 30 kilometres of rugged bush country, hauling 30 tonnes of artillery with them. Their goal is to deliver a decisive blow against the forces of Kawati, Honeheke and their allies, holed up at a new pa called Ruapekapeka. This was an army just 30 years before that had faced down Napoleon. It knew how to use artillery to soften up an entrenched enemy, how to use close-order troops to lay down steady and effective musket fire. They were technologically superior. They had guns and cannons and explosive rockets forged in the fires of the Industrial Revolution. Here's historian Vincent O'Malley. This is the world's sole superpower at the time, up, up against really a civilian population. Māori are hugely outnumbered through most of these conflicts. They don't have heavy artillery. At a highway in Rupekapeka, there's a, there's a couple of rusty old cannons, but that, that's it. But the British weren't invincible, and that's partly because their army neglected the human element of warfare. The organisation of the British Army had remained unchanged since the Napoleonic Wars of the early 1800s. It was inflexible and brutal. This is still the pre-reformed British Army, um, and it's pretty appalling. Um, The pay is terrible, the food and the housing conditions are terrible, alcoholism is rife. And, you know, people who uh, witness floggings of British troops, some are left in tears, are just distraught at what they've witnessed. And so the British Army is, is really quite a barbaric institution at this time. Presiding over this barbarism was the officer class, and they were often hardly more competent than their troops. These were the days of paid commissions, where if you put up enough cash, you'd be instantly promoted, regardless of your experience or ability. The man in charge of the British forces is a classic example of what this corrupt system produced. His name was Lieutenant Colonel Edward Despard. Despard, when he arrives in New Zealand, is about 60 years old, and he hasn't seen active service for about 30 years He's a very obstinate person and he's also very contemptuous of Māori. And shortly before his first action um, at Ohaiwai, Tamati Wakanene comes to see him and to offer his services and those of his people. 
Um, and Despard replies, if I want assistance from savages, I'll, I'll let them know. And the translator is so concerned by that, by this, that he refuses to tell Nenny this because he knows that he'll probably just storm off greatly offended by this. Um, and later on at a highway, when Despard makes it clear that he's going to storm the par, Tamati Wakaneni says, Hetangata kuware tene tangata, and Despard again asks his translator, what, what did the native say? And uh, the translator at first refuses to tell him, and he's ordered to eventually, and he says, um, he says, you're a very stupid person, sir. And of course, well, Tamati Wakaneni was right, because what happened at Ohiowai was, um, you know, a massive, de massive and demoralising defeat for the British. They were mown down um, in huge numbers. This lack of leadership talent at the heart of the British Army eventually led to the catastrophic logistical and tactical blunders in the Crimean War and Indian Rebellion of the 1850s. What's worse, as they were marching to do a pika pika, the British-led forces were demoralised. As O'Malley says, five months earlier, Despard led them to a horrific defeat in the Battle of Ohiowai. That's despite the British and its allies outnumbering the defenders, Six to one. At Ohio, you had 300 troops storming the par. Um, Despard had been bombarding it for a week and he thought that there would, there would be significant damage. What he hadn't accounted for was the fact that Māori had developed anti-artillery bunkers. So they were perfectly sheltered from this. Um, and those 300 troops get within 20 metres of the par. Uh, and all of a sudden a ferocious fire comes down on them. And one third of them are cut down within the space of 10 minutes. 40 killed, 70 injured. A bloody full stop was put on that conflict when one Māori warrior grabbed the hair of a fallen British lieutenant, sliced his scalp away and held up the trophy to the retreating British forces. The victorious defenders burst out in a haka. You can imagine that story being told around the British campfires as they marched, step by step, to an even better defended pa commanded by Tiriki Kawati, the very same rangatira who had led the successful defence of Ohiowai. But it doesn't seem to have played on the mind of Lieutenant Colonel Despard. One of the greatest um, defeats that the British suffer in New Zealand, and this is a point when... Um, Despard should realise that Kawati is a formidable uh, military commander, but he fails to heed that lesson. Rua Pika again, um, a par built and designed by Kawati, um, and again, he's determined to storm it. The Māori military leadership wasn't exactly a meritocracy either. The war leaders were all rangatira, aristocrats, but those rangatira had the advantage of having risen to power during the musket wars at a time when all North Island Māori and the people of Ngāpuhi in particular revolutionised their methods of war. Here's historian David Green again. Musket wars that's from the 1810s to the 1830s brought a, a huge evolution in how Māori fought. You can kind of see what happened in the, the 1840s as a, a, as a pro progression from that rather than a sweeping innovation because what they had to do during the musket wars is find ways to fight with muskets and also ways to not to be killed by muskets 
and that meant traditional paths were changed quite markedly during this period so that they would resist um, musket fire particularly and even artillery fire because artillery was used by many iwi during the musket wars. 30 years experience might sound like a lot but in terms of the size of the change that happens it's extraordinary. In Europe the transition to gunpowder happened over hundreds of years and Europeans incorporated these weapons into battles that already featured bows and arrows, crossbows and catapults. Māori, on the other hand, had a culture of warfare which pretty much exclusively involved close combat weapons like taiaha and patu, and yet completely changed their way of fighting in just a few decades, to the point where in battles like Ohioai they could beat the Europeans at their own game. Vincent O'Malley thinks part of the reason Māori were able to navigate this change so successfully is down to social structures. Māori society in the early 19th century was highly competitive because there's not a single political authority in the land. There are hundreds and hundreds of hapū who are essentially autonomous and control their own affairs. And historians who debate this question of why did Europe advance so much um, from the 16th century onwards often come back to this answer that part of the reason stems from the fact that, that there were multiple political entities within that who were highly competitive with one another. So there's this rivalry that you don't have somewhere like China, which is a more unitary political system. And so, you know, there are comparisons with what's happening in, in within Māori society in the early 19th century in a similar kind of way that because there is this intense rivalry uh, between different hapū and what's been described as the pursuit of mana, they're all very um, receptive to any new technology or n- any new ideas that might allow them to more successfully uh, pursue the interests of their own hapu. Māori had already proven they could adapt to firearms, but the Northern War brought a new challenge. Artillery bombardment. Explosive rockets and shells which had never been seen in New Zealand before. A few cannons were used in the musket wars, so artillery wasn't totally new to Māori, but the British didn't just have one or two cannons, they had more than a dozen heavy weapons. The usual way to deal with an artillery bombardment in those days was to shoot back with your own cannons, or to get around the flank and attack with cavalry. Kawati's forces didn't have cavalry and only a couple of old rusty cannons. They needed something new, a kind of defence never seen before in New Zealand. Māori did um, respond to the threat posed by British artillery in incredibly ingenious ways. They designed new power that incorporated what were anti-artillery bunkers, essentially. They've got trenches, tunnels, covered pits, uh, really intricate and complex designs that are so uh, remarkable that British observers refused to believe that, that mere natives could have, could have designed these themselves. Uh, and in fact, Despard says something along those lines after Ohiowai. These trenches, and particularly the anti-artillery bunkers, were revolutionary. Mortars and rockets didn't have the explosive power to breach them. 
Ngāpuhi have many explanations for where Kawati's ideas for these defences came from. I've been told Kawati was inspired by the Ngāti Hini hunting burrows made for tuna or eels and took inspiration from the way they would hide in the burrows under the bank. Pini Hinari of the Rua Peka Peka Trust thinks the idea came in part from Kawati's experience of the musket wars. In some of those battles, Māori dug smaller trenches and piled earth and logs on top of whare to defend them from cannon fire. He says others have more mystical explanations. When I grew up, our tūpuna always talked to us about astro travel and how our ancestors were able to do that, travel to distant places, our um, wairua in spirit. And I think, when I think of a place like this, he clearly saw something in a world that we didn't see, that we didn't know. He was able to uh, have an outer body experience, if you like, to be able to coordinate exactly what went on here, not just at Rua Pika Pika, but in Te Taitokero. So, Combine that with his experience in war campaigns, his strong, his strong spirituality. We know that Tohunga led um, battles with our warriors and our toa of, of past. And when you combine that all, I think it stands as a temple, if you like, of what warfare really was for our people back then and how brilliant he was as a tactician. And it wasn't just how these pa were built, it was where Kawati built them. So from here and other places in the pa, you can still see a clear line of sight to Hokianga and also to Rako Manga Manga to the east. And the purpose of that was to unify the people of the north. So that's Henare's take. It's a pa with a view. But the strange thing is that there was nothing there to defend. No settlements, no ammo dumps, no food stores. Here's O'Malley. Kawati deliberately builds these in very um, inaccessible, rugged and remote places. In the case of Rua Peka Peka, it takes the British um, three weeks to carry 30 tonnes of guns and equipment um, over 30 kilometres. So they're travelling, you know, they're making about a mile a day or something just to get there. And um, it's, it's a huge feat even to do that. And, and the other key there is that the power itself is not inherently valuable, it's of no strategic or other significance. So the only downside to that is, is of course, it requires a huge investment of labour to build it, um, but it can be easily abandoned afterwards. The design of these new pa evolved over the course of the Northern War and reached its peak at Rua Pika Pika. Uh, it would have been sort of your traditional palisade pa, um, but probably on steroids. So we're talking tree size, we're talking three or four people in oh, diameter as, as a whole palisade. And on top of that, they had bunches of flax harakeke um, bundled up along the, along the patu, watawata along the patu here, uh, just to absorb the impact of all of the artillery. So, like I say, your normal pa on steroids. What about the name, Rua Pika Pika? Where'd that come from? Well, Rua Pika Pika is the bat's nest. And we, we call it Rua Pika Pika simply because of the kinds of network, underground network that they had here for the caves, uh, where people were underground in darkness, just like a bat is. And we know bats aren't on their own, they're usually in groups, so rua peka peka, the bat's nest. The pa took over six months to build, and once it was completed, it faced the toughest of tests.
absolutely terrifying. Um, to have 30 tonnes of artillery rain down upon you for 10 days, one can only imagine. New Zealand had never seen um, the use of artillery like this in its history. All up, the British had three naval 32-pounder cannon, one 18-pounder cannon, two 12-pounder howitzers and a number of mortar and rocket tubes. The bombardment began on the 31st of December as the first guns uh, are brought into place. Um, and in fact, on that first day, the shot fired from a 32-pounder that knocks out the flagstaff within the par. And it also uh, kills a woman who's holding a small child in her arms. Um, and in some accounts, the woman is decapitated. And the child was said to be a grandchild of Kawati. So you do, ha- you do have um, casualties right from the start. The full bombardment doesn't begin until the 10th of January. But the British are progressively firing into the par as, as their guns are brought into place. So by the 10th of January, you know, there'd, there'd be nearly um, 10 or 11 days of bombardment that, that's steadily uh, gathering in tempo. In some ways, it's surprising the British were able to field all this artillery. In fact, if they had wanted to, the defenders probably could have stopped these weapons from reaching Ruapekapeka at all. You know, there is this talk that the Northern War was quite a chivalrous affair, and there are certainly aspects of that. For example, during the three weeks that the British took hauling their equipment up to Ruapekapeka, Kawati had numerous ample opportunities to ambush Um, that supply line um, and refused to take that. On January the 10th, all of the guns were in place for the final earth-shaking bombardment. It wasn't enough to break Ruapekapeka. After 10 days under attack from the British artillery, fewer than a dozen people were killed or injured, and most of those casualties happened outside the PA during skirmishes. That's thanks to the sheer genius of the design of Ruapekapeka, built not just by warriors, but by wahine, tamariki and slaves. There were woven flex screens in front, too flimsy to stop a cannonball, but flexible enough to absorb the energy of a musket shot and tough enough to entangle a charging soldier, like the 1800s version of barbed wire. There were secondary trenches so runners could be sent to call for reinforcements or haul up supplies of food, water and ammunition without exposing themselves. Most importantly, there were underground bunkers allowing the devastating artillery fire to pass overhead while the troops sheltered in safety. And surrounding it all was the wooden palisade made of pūriri trunks seven metres high and more than a metre thick their foundations sunk two metres deep into the soil. The stories I've been told by my tūpuna were by strength of karakia and character. Um, so I'm guessing karakia would have been 
the ability to control the elements around you, which includes tāne mahuta, papatuanuku. Uh, and then the other side, of course, is um, uh, character, which was a heck of a lot of hard work. By the time it was finished, it was a masterpiece of military engineering. In his first episode of his 1998 TV documentary, The New Zealand Wars, historian James Ballach said the par at Ohiowai and Rua Pekapeka were of global significance. British defeat in the Northern War was not the result of their own blunders, nor of high Māori numbers, but of the Māori invention of trench warfare. This claim that Māori invented trench warfare ignited a firestorm of controversy among military historians. They pointed out that there are accounts of people using trenches as fortifications going all the way back to Roman times, perhaps earlier. The debate continues. You know, I don't know whether Māori invented trench warfare, um, but for me the more interesting question is, is why some people get so upset at the suggestion that they might have. Um, James Balich has talked about this idea of the Victorian interpretation of racial conflict, the notion that, that, that Indigenous peoples could be so um, creative and ingenious and so on. And I don't know if there's an element of that and kind of the strong reaction against this, but it, you know, a lot of the comment in, in response to Balich seemed to be more than simply about a matter of whether um, Māori had, had a role in the invention of trench warfare or not. Part of the reason many historians resist the idea that Māori invented trench warfare is that their techniques were never copied by Europeans. It's said that, that models of Kawati's pa were actually taken around the North Island at least and, and studied. And of course the, the British also made models and, and studied them as well. Arguably the Māori remembered the, the lessons rather better than the, the, the British did when it, when it came to the 1860s. The same kinds of structures were developed again in the 1860s by Māori during the, the main phase of the New Zealand Wars. And the commander of that army was, was um, Duncan Cameron, and he later became the head of Sandhurst, the Royal Military College. But my understanding is that in the curriculum at Sandhurst, it, it didn't teach anything relating to what you'd think they would have learnt in Waikato. Whatever they learnt on the spot, they didn't become part of the formal military study. And similar techniques of defence against artillery had to be kept being reinvented, including in 1914-15, when, when all the armies thought this is going to be a mobile campaign and then had to adapt to the fact that it, it wasn't. I think it's partly that European military officers didn't think they had anything to learn from indigenous military experts, even when the evidence that they did was was staring them in the face. But the fact trench warfare was reinvented more than once doesn't make Kawati's entrenchments any less impressive. I think we need to acknowledge these as incredible um, feats of military engineering in their own right, regardless of, of any debate about um, where that fits in the the lineage of trench warfare, you know, Māori did come up with these ideas on their own and, and Kawati was a military genius and he should be acknowledged for that. But no level of military genius could remove the fear factor of tonnes of artillery falling around you. But as Henare says, the defenders had other ways of coping. One particular um, account from an Irishman who was on the other side of the pa 
and they could hear haka and waiata and I'm guessing it's not waiata hadi hadi but it would have been something like a pau or a ngiri they could hear raining out during the night and in the morning. To keep them going, to keep them focused. Motivation, uh, lament perhaps, um, um, scared, moke moke. What's more, in those final days before their bombardment began, the warriors of Rua Pika Pika readied themselves, not just their body, but their mind and spirit, their wairua. These rituals would have been overseen by a tohunga, an expert priest or healer. One modern-day Ngāpuhi tohunga is Te Wārahi Hitaraka. My auntie had a real gentle way of, of relay, relaying the story to me of how her great-grandfather... Uh, prepared his warriors for battle. It was our wairua. It wasn't preparing the tinana. They were already young and strong. But the whole three-day wānanga was preparing the wairua, preparing, preparing them mentally for the task ahead of them. And which means that the wānanga would have covered several topics of importance in regards to the coming battle. The physical wasn't the focus. It was and it's worth remembering that it wasn't just warriors in those bunkers. Women and children too played active roles in the fighting. It wasn't just the boys, you know. We had kōtiro here, wahine here, who served those roles. We know of stories of 10 to 12 years old young people here in the park at the time. And of the what's their role? One role in particular was to continually um, reload muskets for the battle in preparation for the battle. But during the time of the bombing, um, for the mortars that came uh, into the pa here, their job was to run out and if they could, defuse by pulling out the wick. You had to be small, you had to be agile, you had to be fast and quick. Um, so it was an occupational hazard, but a necessary one. Te Warahi Hitaraka's great-uncle was one of those young boys in the trenches. Pene Amene Rino was just 10 years old during the Battle of Rua Pika Pika. The young boys were, were positioned in the trenches and their role was to receive the empty muskets from the warriors, load them and then pass them back up. That's a huge job for a 10-year-old, come to think of it. I see, I know they, those ramrods, they're quite long. They have to pump that down. They've got to make sure they have the right shot in there so they don't blow themselves up. Yeah, and then the wadding on top of that, and then the ball, and gosh, they could shoot themselves trying to pass it up even. <laughs> but, you know, that's the mahi that those kids did. It seems horrific by today's standards. Imagine bringing your kids to a war zone. But it wasn't just Māori who did this. The British often had boys as young as 10 helping load the big guns on their warships. They called them powder monkeys because they could scramble into all the small places on a warship where adults couldn't fit. Ten days of bombardment. Ten days a superpower through all it had at the bat's nest. After all that, it looked as if the cannons had blasted holes in that thick wooden palisade in three places. Seeing this, Lieutenant Colonel Despard wanted to storm the par almost immediately, the way he had at Ohio. 
despot kind of epitomises what you get as a result of a, an army where you have officers not necessarily appointed on the basis of merit. I mean, he, he's not alone in underestimating Māori um, military achievement, and, and there are many more who follow who, who fall into a similar trap. There is this kind of um, arrogance about his approach and his his unwillingness to learn from the disaster at Ohio, which is probably the most staggering thing, because um, he was proposing to repeat precisely that same experience at Ruapekapeka of, of storming Nepal, uh, confident that, that British artillery would make that, a, that an easy task to achieve. And, um, of course, that wasn't going to be the case at all. Luckily for the Redcoats, Despard was talked out of a head-on attack by people who'd seen the consequences of a frontal assault on one of Kawati's pa. Tamati Wakanene, who was there at Ohio, had warned um, Despard against doing this, and he'd, he'd been ignored, he'd been overruled. And then he was also at Ruapekapeka, and again he, he pleaded with Despard not to go ahead um, with this uh, attack on the par, he predicted that there would be a similar outcome to a highway, which had been a disaster for the British. This part again wasn't interested in advice from, as he described it, a mere savage. Um, and it was only the fact that Governor Gray was there, and um, Nenny uh, pleaded with Gray, who who finally intervened. The fact that the governor was there on the ground at Ruapekapeka probably saved many lives as a result. Instead, Nenny's men went into scout the par. You can imagine them nervously creeping towards the palisade, ready to drop flat on the ground at the slightest hint of the enemy. But when they reach the par and look inside, they find nothing. The fortress they had spent weeks struggling to reach and battering with artillery was virtually abandoned. The only people inside were Kawati himself and a small group of warriors. It was a golden opportunity. For the British, the person of Kawati himself would have been a huge target and his capture or death would have, would have been a, a tremendous blow against Dapui. The British forces raced up the hill and slipped through the breaches in the wall. It would have been rather confusing given uh, it would have looked deserted. Uh, there were a few warriors simply to uh, hold off the onslaught or hold off the oncoming uh, raid to allow others to escape. Kawati and his men fired one volley at the attackers, then fled out the back of the par. This is the greatest mystery of Ruapekapeka. Why, after going through so much effort to build this defensive masterpiece, did Kawati leave it so lightly defended, especially after Ohiowai? We could only guess, but at Ohiowai, which of course was comparatively very easy for the British to get to, Kawati had won his victory by almost goading them into a, a direct frontal assault, holding fire until they were 40 or 50 yards away and then just mowing them down. And it would be reasonable to guess that he was hoping to repeat that on, on a larger scale. And yet he doesn't do that. Possibly the difference is that this time the big gun or guns, they had actually clearly made a, a significant breach in one of the angles of the par, which they didn't achieve at Ohio. The fact that 
that Nanny's scouts were able to just walk in, basically. Clearly it was. The defences were impaired. But while to the British it may have looked like Kawati and his small band of fighters were fleeing in terror, most historians these days, including O'Malley, think it was a trick. The small group were remaining in, inside the par as a kind of target to, to lure the British into a trap because um, that they then attempted to draw the, the troops into, um, into the bush behind the par where Māori would obviously have an advantage in, in um, close hand-to-hand combat and that would neutralise British artillery and so on. Um, and so the idea that this might have been a plot to, to lure the British into to fighting on terms where Māori would have the upper hand, I think is probably a stronger explanation for what took place. If so, the plot wasn't terribly successful. Here's Green again. Supposedly the complication was that the rumour got around that Kawati was still in in the par, or it had actually been captured or killed by, by the British, because of course he had been in the par with perhaps ten men and, and fired one volley before before leaving the par. So his men were determined to go back and, and rescue him or, or retrieve his body or whatever, and it took a while for them to be convinced that in fact Kawati was with Hecky behind the lines, as it were. Um, and by that time the British officers had gained some control over their men and, and prevented them from charging off into the bush. Although a number did and, and were, were killed. In the end, casualties from the Battle of Rua Pika Pika were equal, about 50 killed or injured on either side. Most of those deaths happened at that final skirmish at the rear of the pa. Before long, the defenders melted away into the bush and the redcoats were left occupying a pa with no wider significance. All of which leaves us with a question that's hard to answer. Who won the Battle of Ruapekapeka? Governor George Grey immediately insisted Māori had been severely punished. The Crown claimed the final and complete subjugation of the rebels. All spin and nonsense. But neither was it the kind of decisive military victory Kawati achieved at Ohiowai. He and Heke couldn't claim to have defeated the British. Today, however, Northern Māori claim a victory of another kind. I'm going to tell you we won. Uh, we, we, take, we like to take a moral victory, um, but uh, historians will have it however they see it. For us here at Ngāti Hine and the people of the North, we see this as a victory for our people. One, because of what we constructed here. Two, because of what we stood up against. Uh, and three, um, because um, this is still here today as a legacy and a reminder for us all of what our ancestors represented. You can see it in the faces of a lot of our people. When, uh, you know, when the British finally got into the pirate rural Pekapeka, there's nobody there. One of the main customs that, that our people exercise during battles, especially and that's what they, they just deserted it and, and never went back there. It served its purpose. It's tested the opposition, but it didn't defeat the people. Because we're still here today.
In the immediate aftermath of Rupeka Peka, Gray proclaims it as a brilliant success. He speaks up victory, but almost acts as if he's been defeated. By contrast, Hanehiki and Kawati remain at large. If anything, their, their mana and their standing has only increased as, as a result of what's happened. And I think the crucial thing and the telling thing is that the flagstaff on Mikey Hill remains down. And it's only re-erected again um, in 1858, not by the Crown, but by Napui themselves. The battle for Rua Pika Pika was the final conflict of the Northern War. Governor Gray pardoned the rebels, as he called them, and, as O'Malley said, never replaced the flagpole. Honeheke, in exchange, gave Gray his own greenstone mere, a token expressing recognition of the settlers' right to remain in New Zealand and of his expectation that the Queen would uphold Te Tiriti. Both sides seemed to decide they had too much to lose by continuing the fight. The British were scared that prolonged conflict would frighten away settlers from Auckland, smothering the new capital before it had a chance to bloom. For Honeheke and Kawati, the problem was a lack of resources and manpower. And tragically, the economic issues which helped start the war in the first place remain unresolved. If anything, the situation gets worse. It devastated our people, not just in terms of loss of life and land, but because we know that immediately after the Battle of Rua Pika Pika, um, the seat of power in the country shifted out of the north and down into Tamaki Makoto. Um, so that's all poverty hit our region, um, poverty that hadn't been experienced given the boom times in the Bay of Islands. So it's had very much a negative impact on our people. Some in the north, such as Arapita Hamilton and Te Warahi Hitaraka, say the struggle that began in 1845 still goes on today. The legacy of the wars for our people is that we never lost the war and that we have to keep striving to a stage where we achieve our rangatiratanga, whether that's with our own governance or something, we will find it. Tai mai atawa ka kitera tātou te huarahi tika ke tai tātou ki to tātou rangatiratanga. The war is still to be won, I think. The battle is still to be won, and it's and I think it's a it's a different kind of a battle. And it's I think for me it's I think it's writing um, the wrongs of the past for the benefit of all of us, both Pākehā and Māori. Because if that's not fixed up, we're going to continue to be in conflict. And our people will continue to suffer. Yeah. Namahi nui kia koto kato e fakarongo mai nei. Uh, this podcast was presented by me, Ko Shannon Honui-Thompson-Aho, produced by the amazing William Ray and Tim Watkin, engineer was William Saunders, and we had a bit of help with this one. So thanks to my friend, 
I te tuakana, mihi ngā rangi Forbes, i ngā rangatira Vincent O'Malley, Penny Hinare, David Green, Arapita Hamilton and Te Wārahi Hitaraga. And of course the team at Great Southern Television and New Zealand On Air. You can find other podcasts including the Great History series such as Black Sheep and Eyewitness on the RNZ website or app. Or if you prefer iTunes, Spotify, Radio Public or wherever you can get your podcasts from. Ngā mihi nui anō ki ngā kaikōrero katoa o tēnei hōtaka, noho āhuru mai, tēnā koutou katoa.